Hello. As Josh said, my name's Alice, and I'm going to be reading the Bible. Today we're reading from Romans 12, 9 to 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, as it is written. It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep your heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks, Alice. Let me tell you uh, about some things that I love. I love slow-cooked beef sticky ribs in soy sauce on jasmine rice. I love the Carlton Football Club, even when they miss finals and break my heart. I love zombie movies. And I love my wife and my kids. That wasn't meant to be an oh moment. That was, that was a moment to uh, show that we use that word for very different things, right? The word love, I think we have some issues with the way that we use it. Those loves are not equivalent loves, although I, I do really like sticky ribs a lot. <laughs> love. It's, it's the most perhaps misunderstood and overused word in the English language. And we love love, right? In our culture, in every culture, in every time, humans love love. Most of our most famous songs are love songs. Most of our most famous plays and books and films are love stories. Great feats of history, acts of construction have been declarations of love. But we're confused about love as well. Many marriages end when two people say they don't love each other anymore. We're confused about love, but scripture is is clear and is is robust and is deep in how it talks about love. And the New Testament uses four words for love. Maybe you've read the C.S. Lewis book called The Four Loves about this before. Maybe you've come across this, uh, heard this somewhere. If you have, can anyone tell me, this is the time to be brave and to shout out, any of the four words that the New Testament uses for love? Agape, thank you. I can't see whoever that was. Storge, someone said. Thank you. Philia, nice. Thank you, Alex. Eros, well done. Alex gets half the answers. (laughs) 
So there's, there's four words that the New Testament uses for love, right? And unlike our confusion, the Bible's really particular and deliberate about how it uses them. So philia, that word means like friendship love, the kind of love that you have for your closest friends. That The Bible talks about that as philia. Storge, uh, differently to that, is like instinctive affection, like what a parent feels for their child. Eros, uh, like that we get the word erotic from, means romantic love. And agape is the highest love. Agape is the love that God shows us. Agape love is, is pure. It's deliberate. It's faithful. It's enduring. And the New Testament writers are, are really particular, really specific and thoughtful about how they use that word, agape, for love. It's like they want this particular word to uniquely mark out the kind of love that God has for us and calls us as his followers to show to other people. It's this agape love that should mark us out as followers of Jesus. In John 13, Jesus himself says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you agape love one another. That kind of love, love that's like God's love, that's the central driver of the Christian life. Do you remember one time someone comes to Jesus and asks him, what's the most important commandment? What's the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? He says, agape, love, the Lord your God, with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, agape, love, your neighbour as yourself. So that idea of love, agape, love, love that's like God's love, that's the central idea of this passage in Romans 12. Our passage tonight is uh, what's called a paranesis passage. It's a pattern that we see in various places throughout the New Testament. And the the word itself means instruction or or counsel or advice. It's a fairly general word. But we also use it to describe particular passages like ours tonight, which involve this long string of sometimes quite diverse instructions or, or commands like this kind of bang, 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 bang of ethical instructions. Can you see that pattern as you look at the passage in front of you there? All right, here we've got 13 verses with no less than, than 30 commands in them. Lots of instructions, right? lots of things to do, lots of things not to do. But as we're going to see as we get into it, that doesn't make this passage like a legalistic agenda of rules to enforce Rather, it's it's a vision for a transformed life of discipleship. It's a vision of gospel-shaped ethics and lives. Because of the type of passage that it is, because of 30 commands, we're not going to be able to dig into every one of them as much as we'd love to. But what we are going to do is kind of gather together the main themes and see how they're expressed in two different areas of life that Paul writes about. And for passages like this one, for paranesis passages, sometimes the challenge is to work out what is is the theme, what's holding these together. Is this just some kind of stream of consciousness from an apostle who's been writing for too long without having a break, right? 
But no, this, this passage is really clear for us. The central and organising idea is there right at the top. Have a look at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. Agape love must be sincere. That's the central idea. Right, and that, that word, sincere, we've, we've thought about the word love. The word sincere there means unhypocritical, without a mask. That's the kind of literal meaning of the word, without pretense. Friends of mine uh, taught their kids table manners, how to be polite, and particularly uh, when having a meal at someone else's house. And they taught them this little formula. At the end of the meal, uh, as you finish your food, you'd say, thank you very much, I especially loved, and then say which part of the meal you loved the most. Uh, and so they go to a friend's house with their kid armed with this knowledge, this training for good manners. And they get to the end of the meal, the kid arranges their knife and fork and says, thank you very much for dinner, I especially love the water. <laughs> See, sometimes love is not totally sincere, right? Sometimes love isn't totally genuine. But love after the pattern of God's love is, it is genuine, it's truthful, it's real, and it changes the way we do things. So let's, let's look then at two areas of life where God calls us to live out this kind of sincere love. We'll look at two areas. First, we're going to look at our relationships with one another in the church. Have a look with me from uh, verse 10. He says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I wonder what, what words or ideas might you use to kind of gather all those instructions together? That kind of bang, bang, bang of instructions. What kind of expression of sincere love do you see coming through in these verses? I think what we see is a picture of, of wholehearted, of all-in sacrificial love for one another in the Christian community. See in verse 11 where it's, it's translated there as keep your spiritual fervour. Can you see that phrase? That translation kind of misses a key metaphor that's in the, the original word there of being set on fire. You might more literally kind of translate that phrase, be on fire with the Spirit as you serve the Lord. I love that picture of sincere love. But the one who loves their brothers and sisters in Christ with agape love burns with passion and desire and commitment to serve them. It's not half-hearted. It's not a hobby. It's not a club or a social group. It's not two hours on a Sunday night. It is all in, all of life, fiery love for one another. It's unpacked a bit more for us as he goes on in verses 12 to 14. What does that actually look like? Right? It's nice to say fiery love for one another, but what might that actually look like? Well, by being patient, by being prayerful, by being practical. There's no 
room here for this kind of love to just remain like an emotional attachment or just be something that's convenient to us. If we live that love, we're called to be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and practical in sharing material resources and in offering hospitality. A few years ago, uh, I spent a few nights out in like a, a retreat at a place called Tarawara Abbey out in the Arrow Valley near Hillsville. It's run by Benedictine monks who follow this uh, centuries-old practice of Benedictine hospitality where they offer uh, a bed and meals uh, to anyone who asks with no cost and no questions. And it was quite a radical experience for me to go. I just rang them up, said my name was Sam, could I come on these dates? Then I showed up, they showed me to my room, told me the time of the meals and the time of their worship services if I wanted to come and then left me alone for prayer and rest. To the point even, to be honest, that it got slightly concerning as I was walking through the fields and nearly stood on a tiger snake and realised they didn't even know my surname. But it was quite a radical expression of, of this hospitality, this kind of love. What might it look like for us to express love in hospitality. We don't need to become monks to do that. No, hospitality looks like inviting people into our lives, our genuine lives, our homes, our our relationships, ourselves, and not just the, the polished up, vacuumed, smiling versions of ourselves, but the real, the sometimes messy, genuine selves. A former mentor of mine and his wife were so hospitable that their, their home became like a second home for this whole community of young believers that Ronnie and I were part of. We were there all the time, as were heaps of other young Christians from our church and, and beyond. The first time I went to the house, they had only just moved to Australia themselves. I'd only met them once, but they invited me into their home, had dinner with their kids, included me in their family devotion. They often had people living with them who needed a place to stay and those people were were just folded into the rhythms of their life like I was. Eventually, you didn't even need to knock at their front door anymore. You just could go in as if it was your own house. There's an amazing expression of love in hospitality and it's the kind of thing that we're being called to here in these verses. It's radical. It's unusual. It certainly was in Rome as well. Because in in ancient Rome, where these people are reading the letter, philosophers, they normally associated virtue not with hospitality but with apatheia, where we get the word apathy from. A deliberate lack of involvement in or care for the affairs of other people. That was the, the norm of the day. And so this picture here of passionate, all-in, fiery love for one another, involvement in each other's lives, was and still is radical. Of course it is, right? Do you remember the command at the start of this section of Romans that we explored last week in Romans 12 verse 2? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The worldly pattern here is apatheia and the transformed life is sincere, fiery love for one another. Apathy is a current of the world 
that we live in. Whatever culture we've grown up in, it looks different. But more and more for young people in our day, apathy, kind of passive outlook on life is, is an increasingly dominant current and pattern of our culture. But apathy is not God's vision for our lives. Being passive is not God's vision for our lives. And neither is, is frantic activity, right? running around all the time as if we were sovereign and God were not and it was all on us. But here, in Romans 12, God calls us to reject the worldly pattern of apathy and instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds to be zealous, to be set on fire by the Spirit with love for one another. So that's, that's Paul's first application right, of the principle of sincere love. It's his encouragement to the Christian community to be devoted to one another in this radical way. And like we've seen, it's full of these positive commands, right? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But have a look at verse 16 with me. He switches from positively worded commands to negatively worded commands. Right? He's been saying, do this, do this, do this. We get to verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And then he says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And on he goes from there. Now, it's not an absolute pattern, right? He did use a negative command in verse 11 and he will use a couple of positive commands in verses 17 and 18. But there's this really clear and deliberate switch in his grammar, right, which helps us to shift with him into a new a point, a new area of life that he's applying this principle of sincere love to. What is that area of life? Revenge. My grandmother's one of the most uh, thrifty and also one of the most generous people that I know. She has been into financial austerity and sustainable living since long before it was cool. And she does that so that she can be financially generous to other people. So recently her bed broke. And instead of doing what you and I do, maybe finding one on Marketplace or heading off to Ikea, buying a cheap one that will break in another two years, she looked at the manufacturer's label on the bottom of this bed that she bought in like the 70s or 80s and she rang them up to ask about repairing the bed. And the guy on the end of the line, the guy at the company quoted her $3,000 to fix the bed and tried to organise to come and complete the job before anyone knew or could intervene. Luckily, Gran was too smart for him and she rang us and we fixed the bed. But you should have heard the words that came out of my mouth and the many more that I managed to keep behind my lips when I heard about this. Right, this bottom feeder trying to rip off my 93-year-old grandmother for $3,000. I spent days fantasising plots about going to his factory, making him pay for what he tried to do to her, right? I thought of countless ways that I could extract the money from him that he tried to extract from her. I daydreamed a lot of revenge. We, we kind of love revenge, right? 
if, if we love love, if love dominates our literature and our film and our music, then revenge makes a close second, I reckon. Great works of literature like the Iliad, Hamlet, the Count of Monte Cristo, Wuthering Heights, Moby Dick. Revenge dominates movies and TV, right, including one of the biggest franchises of all time, right, literally called The Avengers. And, and revenge, our, our desire for revenge, that might not feel pressing to some of us in the room. But for others, it's consuming. Revenge against the person who hurt you. Revenge against your parents. Revenge after the breakdown of a relationship. Revenge after being cheated or ignored or ripped off. Revenge after being taken advantage of. It's not totally clear what situation of revenge Paul exactly has in mind here in Romans 12. It might be the kind of situations particular to being a Christian in this increasingly hostile Roman society, right? Things like losing livelihoods, being socially ostracised. Or it might just be that every day, every person experiences of things like cheating in commerce, being bullied, personal conflict. But whatever their situation, whatever our situation, God calls us away from revenge. Have a look at this uh, from verse 19 with me. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as as we saw with Paul's exhortation to love, to fiery love for one another, this teaching, again, stands in stark contrast to the pattern of the world, to the prevailing Greco-Roman thought world. Hear this from Aristotle. To take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For to retaliate is just, and that which is just is noble. And further, a courageous man ought not to allow himself to be beaten. That's the pattern of the world. The Old Testament famously engaged right, with this human instinct for revenge. It regulated and, and limited this desire. Remember the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth injunctions, right? Those are there to put a limit on revenge, to ensure proportional punishment rather than escalating blood feuds. But even the Old Testament points beyond just limiting revenge. It points forward to something better, to forgiveness and to grace. We saw Paul here quote in verses 19 and 20 from Deuteronomy 32 and Proverbs 25. Or hear this from Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. Those are familiar words, right? 
Jesus picks up this thread from the Old Testament and he teaches it and he models it himself, the ultimate antithesis of revenge, grace. He teaches and he shows grace. Grace that goes above and beyond in responding to evil. Grace is more than resisting the urge for revenge. Grace is more than forgiving the one who you might have taken revenge against. Grace is responding to evil with blessing, with good, with love. Right? It's Jesus dying on a cross, praying for the soldiers who nailed him there. That's grace. And that's what we're called to here in Romans 12. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's participating with Christ. That is showing grace. So I wonder, is there anyone in your life that you would like to have revenge over? If so, how might God in his word be calling you tonight to release that desire? To trust God's words here, that it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. Now grace doesn't ignore or minimise the offence, not for a moment. We can let go of revenge because of two things that are true. Jesus himself died for sins to achieve perfect justice and to set us the model of grace and because vengeance is the Lord's. As verse 19 puts it, we leave room for God's wrath to be satisfied either by the blood of Jesus on their behalf or in themselves at the end of all things. Because of the cross and the final judgment of God, we can respond to evil with blessing with grace, not with revenge. How might we live this out today? Well, when I talk about that that desire for revenge, maybe there's a very clear face in your mind. Some of us don't find it hard to see how this teaching connects to our lives. The person who cheated you, the person who hurt you, person who denied what they should have given you, who took something from you, the call here is to entrust vengeance to the Lord, to show grace, to not be overcome by evil but to overcome evil with good. Sincere love, right? love that is sincere, is a high call. It's a high bar. It's a high aspiration for the life of discipleship. Of course it is, right? That's what we're being called to here. We're being called to stand out, to be transformed away from the patterns of the world. And patterns are patterns for a reason, right? It's it's easier to drift into apathy than to love one another with fiery, self-giving love. It's easier to indulge, to daydream, to fantasise, to desire revenge than it is to show grace. But God never calls us to do anything that he doesn't empower us for. 
Do you remember how we started this chapter in Romans? In view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. It's God's mercy at the cross of Christ that gives us the perfect model of entrusting vengeance to the Lord as we follow the example of the one who cried out, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. It's God's mercy in the gospel which ensures that one day perfect justice will be done for every wrong, for every hurt, for every crime. Every person will be held to account for their actions, either in themselves or by having their sin crucified with Christ. God's mercy in sending his spirit empowers us for radically other-focused love, for set on fire by the spirit love for one another. So here's the point, right? This is a high call, but you can live this life. You can do it. God doesn't call you to anything he doesn't empower you for. And to be the kind of transformed, not conforming to the world, people and community that we're called to be from Romans 12, we must live this life. Let me pray that we would. God, we praise you for your love for us. We praise you that in your love you save us, you give us new life and you call us to live that love. We pray that each of us would live love that is sincere, fiery love for one another and love that seeks grace instead of revenge. In all the things that we do, Lord, we pray that our love would reflect yours would point people to you and would bring you glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.